welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is brought to you with the support of Health Education England Northwest and their talented GP educators. I'm joined by one of them today. Mo, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Thank you, Avril. Uh, my name is Mohan Kumar. I'm a jobbing GP, a GP trainer, and I also work with Health Education England as an associate dean with an interest in teaching communication and consultation skills. Great, thank you. Today's podcast mainly concerns the module which is called Skills for Building Effective Relationships and it refers to a specific chapter which is called Be on the Same Page as Your Patient, How to Deepen Rapport. Now people often talk about building rapport as though it's really only part of the beginning of the consultation and in fact there is a whole chapter on how to build rapport at the beginning of the consultation uh, in this resource. But how, how do we use rapport and keep its importance throughout the whole consultation. Thanks, Avril. One of the very reasons which attracted me to take a career in general practice was the opportunity not just to build rapport within a single encounter, but to have an ongoing rapport with a person or their family. So it goes to the fundamentals of what general practice is all about and how this rapport then helps us to decision make, to support the people we're looking after and develop some shared decision-making. That's the reason why I consider rapport very, very important. As you said, it's not a one-off creation. And some people may mistakenly think rapport is a quick good morning or a hello and a smile at the beginning of the consultation, and then you get down to business. Actually, the business is rapport because a lot of the decisions we make needs the rapport as the support system under which you operate jointly. Um, It's built throughout the consultation. And you can see some consultations where there seems to be rapport at the beginning of the consultation, but when the conversation starts, you can see the rapport disappearing and it can create to some awkward conversations with our patients. And sometimes it can hinder decision-making and shared problem solving as well. So I think rapport is absolutely important right from the beginning to the end of the consultation, but also throughout a series of consultations as a family doc. And it delivers much better outcomes for both of us. I think that's right. Although I would say that the benefits of rapport really extend not just in general practice, but also to all the clinical relationships that people have. And even at just a very basic level, if you have a good rapport with any patient that you're looking after in whatever role, they're much more likely to tell you relevant information, aren't they? Or much more likely to tell you things they might find embarrassing, for example, uh, which might still be very important medically or, or, or in the clinical care. And they're much more likely to take on board any shared decision making and planning uh, and activities that you decide. So it's, it's really important for everybody. So if we think about this kind of rapport that underpins uh, any consultation in a healthcare setting, how, how can clinicians do this? What skills could they be using? The interesting thing about rapport is people value it and appreciate it when it naturally exists. And both for clinicians who may not naturally exhibit that rapport, 
or may struggle with certain type of patients where the rapport doesn't naturally generate itself, it becomes important to think about this text as well. Because several GPs out there may think, why am I reading this chapter? I have naturally have great rapport. But if you if you look into every encounter you've had, there will be some encounters, even if you are the most gregarious person, where the rapport disappeared or disintegrated. And equally, there are others you may be confronted with a trainee who perhaps may come from uh, a place where they haven't had to establish this rapport. They probably worked in a clinic or in a technical job where the face-to-face -face encounters were minimal. So building rapport and thinking about the steps of rapport becomes really. There are several other chapters in our resource which actually talks about aspects of building rapport. Some of them are quite fundamental, like listening attentively. We've already mentioned that not to think about what you're going to ask when the patient is talking, but to listen attentively to the narrative they were giving. It reaps a lot of rewards by giving you more information, the ideas, concerns, and expectations. But fundamentally, it is one of the founding foundations of rapport building as well. The second thing I find is not being judgmental. Um, I work in general practice and I work with populations where I have to respect however convoluted, however strange their views are. If I start to head shake or frown as soon as they mention their ideas, then that becomes a prejudgment. So it's nice to remain uh, open and, and listen with empathy. I think that's one of the foundation stones of that. Using the tone which does not sound parental and having an adult adult conversation, um, we can take cues from several uh, news readers and voiceovers, advertisers use these soothing voices where uh, rather than come across staccato, if you, if you have the kind of tone you can adopt when you're talking to patients, that helps to build rapport. A lot of the rapport is also nonverbal. The way we sit, the way we turn to the patient as they walk into the consulting room, how we, how our posture is, whether it's attentive enough, but relaxed and not looking too curt to, to make them go very quickly. Um, eye contact for me is an important element as well. So there's, a, there's going to be, I'm sure there's a chapter on some specific non-verbal skills uh, we can relate to. But for the purpose of rapport, I think the, the main elements would be the tone of the voice, which is called paralinguistics, the eye contact, which is which we could use the term oculessics, which just to use a technical term, because we are doctors, we like to use some technical terms. Even the proximity, uh, because there is this sweet spot um, between how close or how far away you are from the patient in the way you arranged your chair. And I think finding the right distance, which is safe and without in, invading their personal space, but at the same time, offers an empathetic distance because too far away, you sound like you, you are interviewing them for, for something. Uh, that becomes very important. With regards to the tone of the voice, there is something about the speed, the volume, and the clarity of questions we ask, which is useful. And I often find that I mean, I, uh, my accent um, is from all over the place because I, I did my schooling in South India, even though I studied an English medium, my teachers were speaking with an Indian accent. Then I moved to London and then I came up to Wigan. Um, and, and often I found that I have this habit of mirroring uh, the person in front of them. And my children always make fun of me that the moment I land in somewhere, when we go on holiday to America or somewhere, uh, my, my 
later, later becomes later, and my water <laughs> becomes water. So I'm, I, I found that I naturally do mirror, and some GPs do find the mirroring is a very helpful strategy in terms of building rapport as well. So these are some of the uh, elements of how to uh, build rapport. And even if you naturally have it, for the purposes of teaching, if you're a trainer, it's worth breaking down those natural rapport skills you have, and perhaps ask the trainee to observe that and report that. Yeah, I think I think that's very interesting, particularly mirroring uh, the tone of voice and the kind of words people are using and, and avoiding jargon and, and using the same kind of colloquialisms that people use. People often talk about mirroring posture as well um, as being a way of uh, sort of aligning yourself. And if you look at people say in a restaurant or something or or just chatting in the park you can tell who's having a happy nice conversation because their postures kind of are a kind of mirror imaging of each other aren't they they kind of you know when one of them starts waving their arms around the other one will do the same or if one of them leans forward the other one will lean forward and the, while you can't you have to be careful not to copy people because that's very annoying but this kind of mirroring of the general posture and position can be very very helpful in building rapport but I'm also thinking do you think there's some situations where matching and mirroring could be the wrong thing to do? Um, Absolutely Avril because while we talk about mirroring if the person who's coming into the room is angry um, or even in, in odd cases you can have a flirtatious person walking in mirroring can become dangerous in both instances because if you mirror anger it just exacerbates the anger. And if you mirror the flirtiness, if it's inappropriate, then it gives away the wrong signals and it can be very unprofessional mm. and create a level of over-familiarity. So I think there are circumstances where we have to be careful about what we are mirroring, even if our natural tendency is to mirror. And talking about watching couples and watching pairs of people talking, um, what you're what we are describing is like you said it's not exact mirroring it's complementing the posture mm -hmm. like the head tilt or the hand movement though so it almost sounds like a conversational dance uh, it doesn't sound in inappropriate or doesn't mm -hmm. sound clum clumsy it sounds very elegant when two mm -hmm. people are mirroring and having a conversation with them. one of one of our favorite hobbies when Louise and I go out for a meal is you know we all do that we watch couples and other tables <laughs> and watch what kind of mirroring is going on and who's going to be in big trouble. And who's <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think um, it, it's a, with all the skills that we use, it, it's a question of choosing the right tool for the job, isn't it? And picking the right moment to do a certain thing. And if you're trying to encourage someone to tell you something or you sense they're going to tell you something important, but they're a bit hesitant, then just very subtly matching their posture or their position, remaining quiet, giving them space, can allow that rapport to get to the place where they can tell you something that's difficult or embarrassing or awkward or something they weren't sure that they would mention because they didn't know if they trusted you and that kind of thing. It does strike me that some of these particularly nonverbal behaviours are do have a sort of culturally specific element because, for example, even something as simple as shaking hands is, is more common 
in some environments than others. I was going to say in some cultures, but I think even within a culture, some people shake hands in a shake hands culture and other people in the same culture don't don't bother or, or don't particularly expect to do that. So could you say something about building rapport in those situations where you're not sure if you have a shared view of, of certain things, you know, whether the extent to which your own natural or cultural behaviour matches the person that you're with? Absolutely. I think, uh, once again, to, to link back to my experience of having come from a different culture and having arrived in England and being a doctor here, at the same time, I also travel widely sometimes to teach other groups of doctors and students. So it's a, it's a subject of um, interest to me in terms of how we exhibit, how we accept non-verbal behaviours. There used to be a series of advertisements, I think for HSBC Bank or, or something, where they showed how you know, it's okay to put your feet up in, in one culture, whereas in another culture, it can be the absolute insult. Um, and equally, it can create some embarrassing encounters if you're reaching across to take hands with somebody and they don't feel comfortable doing that. It creates an awkward moment and can break the rapport. Thankfully, in a general practice setting or a doctor-patient encounter setting, or even any clinical encounters, patients come in not expecting you to be hugging them or shaking hands straight away. And often it's it's easy to leave this to them and be aware of those cues. I can see sometimes the way patients give feedback to a successful consultation is to reach across and give give their hand. And then we can then accept that as depending on our culture, we can accept it. Or you can offer an alternative, like you know, in, in South India, when you when you try to shake hands within the culture, some people will shake hands, some people will give you a namaste. Where they say, and it's not considered an insult. They're not saying, "I won't shake your hand." They're just saying, "This is my approach yeah. to do that." And, and I think that the, the whole area of cultural competence has become very important in the UK because we work multiculturally: the doctors, the clinic, the clinicians, the multidisciplinary teams, as well as the patient populations we deal with come from a variety of cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth spending a little bit of time understanding your local population. I think one aspect of the capability, community orientation, is knowing your community and who's more likely to come through your door. Mm. So if you're working with a large number of Asian population or an Islamic population, Hindu population, then it's worth just having a little session. So maybe even with the patient groups to say, what is appropriate in your uh, culture? Mm. Um, so those things really help beyond, I think it's, it's, there is the rapport within the consultation setting, but there's also the generic rapport you establish with your patient population as well. Yeah, and I, I think that last point you made about asking people is, is very important because I think if in a sort of humble and non-judgmental way, if, if something has cropped up that you're a bit concerned about or, or seems to be a point where you're, maybe you and the patient are not quite on the same page, you can always say look you know in this is what I would normally do what would you normally do in this situation or may I ask you what would be the best way for me to like sometimes for example what would I would might say what would be the best way for me to speak to your mother or your father you know because quite often you see people who bring older relatives um, and you're not quite sure who is the right person to speak to or how to speak to them or what, what would be acceptable. And I think if you ask in a nice way, people respect. They don't expect you to know everything about everything, but they do expect you to, to show an attitude of kindness and respect and interest and curiosity and a willingness to adapt to to what people are, are bringing to the consultation because that's part of the thing 
that rapport that you build there is part of what will enable them to trust you and to work with you on a management plan that's going to be successful, to stick to a treatment plan if you if that's what you come up with and so on. So I, I think... Thing, Avery, yeah, go on. Is, you, you raise a very important point, both about understanding who we are talking to, but also being very self-aware. Mm. And I think raising awareness of our, ourselves, within ourselves, our colleagues, natural tendencies which may be sometimes misconstrued so i have an example where one of my trainees was very tall and for her comfort as the consultation progressed she would slide down the chair uh, and her non-verbals for her was that she was listening comfortably mm. but the patient sometimes came out and said she couldn't be bothered yeah. so yeah uh, it's, it's 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 not about sometimes people ask me you're talking about cultural competence does that mean that there is the right way or the wrong way to do it and i'm saying it's not it's about the person you're talking to and the, the kind of person you are and occasionally if you have to do something which may be misconstrued by the others by taking eye contact off looking at the computer just seeking a couple of words of permission to say i'm going to look at the computer now yeah. can keep the rapport going and it doesn't break it and yeah. i think it is being more aware than having the right way. We're not actors. We're not learning in front of a mirror like Robert De Niro to say, you know, you're talking to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to be more aware of those. And we yeah. learn throughout as we meet more and more people. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I think that's very interesting about the self-awareness because you just have to be able to think about what you're doing. I, I, I had to train who was very capable but I watched a video where the patient was sitting in front of him and he was looking over his shoulder out of the window. And I just said to him, I noticed that you're looking out of the window, not at the patient. And he said, oh, yeah, all my friends say that. They all say I don't look at them when I'm speaking and I look out of the window. And I said, well, you know, why don't you just try looking at the patient and see what happens? You just try it out. And the next day he said, you know, I've been looking at the patients in the clinic today. It's incredible. They tell you all sorts of things and they and they they just keep talking without you having to ask lots of questions. Fantastic. So I think it's sometimes just one of the great benefits of video, of course, is it raises it makes can be feel very awkward at first, but it does just raise our awareness of the kinds of things we're doing. And and I was just thinking, would you like to say something about using a video to teach people to be more aware of the kind of um, skills they might observe or what they might observe on a video? What, what do you think about watching a, a, a consultation back for that purpose? Absolutely. Um, it's worth sharing my experience in this field because I started developing an interest in non-verbal skills purely out of uh, a personal justification because I grew up in South India where the tone of the voice can raise with a variety of emotions. And, and in the Western ear, a raised voice sometimes is aggressive or angry, whereas if you go to other countries, it may be a sign of passion, enthusiasm, or excitement as well as that. Mm -hmm. So I then, it, it developed an interest in me to say, well, maybe people may perceive me as angry when I'm trying to be enthusiastic or even defensive. Sometimes mm -hmm. uh, when you're feeling vulnerable, people raise their voice. And there is a nice, interesting equality and diversity video which describes this encounter in a bank where some Asian person is considered aggressive, but actually they feel very frightened and their voice goes up. Mm -hmm. So all these come into play in a, in a doctor-patient encounter. When it came to uh, applying this to GP training, what I tried to do is I asked a series of educators who have sent their trainees knowing very well, like those examples we said, I actually 
described this back to my trainee using the video. I felt comfortable doing that and she felt comfortable receiving the feedback because she said that's really helpful because that means I can correct it. Like your trainee who, who said there are huge benefits to looking away from the window. What I, when I asked the educators, there's a large cohort of educators who perhaps have a trainee from a different culture felt very vulnerable bringing this up because they thought it sounded very intrusive and critical of another culture and even sometimes be perceived as racism. So they said be avoided saying your face doesn't join in when you say an empathetic statement or your tone of voice is not there because they thought they were making a personal criticism. So they asked me, I, when I asked them what would have made it easier for you to approach this, they said, well, when we have a consultation model, we are able to go through the steps of saying hello without thinking it's something I would say or you would say, it's just considered the right thing to say. So it prompted me to develop a non-verbal skills assessment tool. And what I did is uh, I circulated to a series of trainers and said, can you watch the video without the sound? So you can focus more on the eye movement and the non-verbal skills. And then there is also an element of sound in there where you're not looking at the content of the speech. What you're looking at is the tone, the volume, the speed, anything which can interfere with rapport building. Mm -hmm. And it's been quite uh, successfully used. And I, and I think we are going to put that in as a resource for teaching so people can try using that. And basically all it describes is the various elements of non-verbal skills we've already talked about in terms of eye movements, hand movements. And then it invites them to just reflect on it rather than say, this is the right way to move your hand. The right yeah, exactly. And I, I think one of the things there is is also it just enables people to observe how these things are matched and mirrored in, in a successful part of the consultation, because there'll, there'll always be some part of a consultation where the two parties are getting along all right, even if at other times they struggle for whatever reason. People often don't realise that they're unconsciously mirroring the position of the patient or that they're talking at a similar speed or things like that. And just, as you say, building a self-awareness can be the first step to this. Uh, and we use a similar method when working in groups is uh, we divide people into threes. Uh, we get a speaker to talk about something they're very happy to talk about, which could be something like a hobby that they do at the weekend, or you could get them to talk about which of their placements they've enjoyed the most and, and why that is. And the listener's job is is not to ask a lot of questions, but to encourage perhaps by saying go on or use a few active listening skills like saying, you know, tell me more or something like that. But to match and mirror the posture or the tone of voice and what people are saying and then to to kind of get the observer to see what happens, to notice when it's happening, to notice the effects of it and to have a conversation about this. Because initially it can feel a bit clunky. But if you're the speaker and you get warm to your subject and you're saying, well, actually, what I really like doing at the weekend is, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, playing rugby or something. Um, uh, and then you can start when you're talking about it, you don't notice your posture then because you get involved in what you're talking about. But the observer can then see the effect of the listener just kind of leaning forwards or leaning back or maybe raising their arms when the person raises their arms or whatever it is. Uh, and that can be quite a useful thing. Again, it's not so much to teach a specific skill, as you say, it's more about observing the effects and observing yourself and then being able to choose which effect you want to go for. Um, because there are times when you want to sit back and everybody to be very relaxed. But there might be a time in the consultation where it's coming to a close where you might want to signal um, something else. And so you might be saying, look, 
can I use the computer to check your prescription before you go? And I'm going to turn away slightly and that is going to change that rapport a little bit. So it's about using all these things in a very conscious way, isn't it? If I may add a couple of points to that very quickly, very briefly. Um, when we observe somebody who's got natural body language, because we, we kind of we don't we forget that, and but we receive their messages in a lot more pertinent, a lot more persuasive way. So when we look at somebody like Barack Obama doing a public speech, there are some elements of it that are quite natural, but some of it comes from media training on how where to pause, where to raise your voice, where to show passion, how much of hand movement to do. So the message comes through strong and powerful. And I think consultations are very similar to that, being more aware of how we give the message. And I don't think uh, as part of our GP training, we do a lot of consultation skills, but I don't think people have given us uh, lessons in how to be more persuasive. And I think it's highly essential if you're selling a management plan or if you're developing one uh, to make sure you're benefiting the person in front of you by being persuasive. And I think rapport, body language and cultural awareness are very, very useful. The second point very quickly is some of the rapport is about prior preparation. And I found that trainees sometimes when they're running late, they press the buzzer and have this inappropriate introduction to somebody who's coming in with a bereavement, a wide smile and hello, it's sunny outside. It's not going to work when somebody's coming in after a bereavement. So looking at the records, even if you're running late, spending two minutes just to be aware of a potential reason for consultation. I mean, if you're caught by surprise, fine, but it's, it's always a useful lesson. But there's been some moments where I found trainees ended up smiling when somebody's lost their child or somebody's mm. been cancer it can it can really destroy rapport yeah. if you're not prepared so i think an element of preparation is always useful for rapport but before you go into a room or before you consult with somebody i'm doing a home visit even yeah I, you know, I think that's really really important and i think it's so interesting how uh, this what we're talking about here in, in the module, building the relationship with the patient, links so much with these other modules about gathering information. And also in that one, you've gone right back and said there are skills for beginning a consultation effectively that start before the patient enters the room. And if you look at that module, there's a lot of inf there's two whole chapters that there about what to do before you even meet the person that will ensure that you build a relationship. And there's more information about this in the module we're talking about today, which is called Skills for Building Effective Relationships. And there are chapters which really explore in detail how empathy and compassion produce better clinical outcomes and how we can transform our meetings with patients from rather formal transactions into actual healing relationships. And this is more satisfying for patients. And actually, it makes us as clinicians much happier as well. Thank you, Mo. Thank you so much, Anna. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.